Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Why don't you stand up? We'll begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call upon thee the heavenly God as upon a father and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Bow down your heads to the Lord. May the blessing of the Lord and his mercy come upon you through his grace and his love for mankind at all times, both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Is Professor Wunsch with us this evening? How you doing? Are you ready? All right. This is a tough crowd up here. They start throwing things at you, okay? Our speaker this evening pursued graduate studies in Rome at the Angelicum, where he obtained his bachelor's and licentiate in philosophy, and where he is now pursuing his doctoral degree in philosophy. You haven't finished yet? Uh, it's completed. Has to be f I have to fly out to defend. Yeah. I mean, I've been giving the same announcement yeah, for like yeah, five yeah, years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's complex. It's complex. In, in addition... In, ad <laughs> in addition to serving Christendom College as a professor of philosophy, <laughs> Professor Wunsch has traveled widely, lecturing on a variety of topics, including the relationship between faith and reason, which is the reason why he's here tonight, the connection between philosophy and history, and the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. Please join me in welcoming Professor Mark Wunsch. All right. <clears throat> Uh, it's good to see everyone again. I should probably defend myself. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I wasn't prepared to do that, but... It, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I'll start with defending myself as I work up a cheap shot here. Um, yeah, no, yeah, there's... Um, uh, yeah, one of the difficulties I have to defend my thesis is that, is that it's in Rome, okay? And uh, I don't have a fear of flying, okay? And so, uh, I've been working on my, my swimming abilities, okay? And they're just about good enough to make it, okay? Just about. But the doctoral thesis is written and approved by everyone. Uh, there's just a, a few uh, things that have to happen for it to be completed, one of which is, is my moderator, the, the, the man who directed my thesis, is made Bishop of Geneva, Switzerland. And so he has to be present when I'm present in Rome. And there, there's some complexities there that hopefully will be resolved in the next time I see you. <laughs> yeah, for my own sake, you know. I, 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 I'm hoping that it'll be Dr. Wunsch. Okay. Well, it's a pleasure to see everyone again. Uh, I, I used to begin all my talks with a joke, okay? But, but, but I think we've covered that already. Uh, and, and, and I'm more reticent to go down that road. 
uh, because of all these cameras and things. Okay? <laughs> now, now that's one thing making a joke in front of an audience where you can see them. I can laugh at my own jokes, shame them into laughing at my jokes. You know, you know, they they, they want to be charitable, and so they laugh at me. But when people are sitting on their couches, you know, <laughs> their feet up, and you know, eating a bag of potato chips or whatever, I'm afraid my jokes aren't good enough to, to, to really rouse them to any kind of laughter. And it does, though, lead to kind of trepidation. You know, the, the World Wide Web, people are watching. Uh, and so I'm, I'm looking for confidence you know, to, to do this. Uh, but again, I, we draw confidence, do we not, from charity, okay? Uh, at least I do. Then I, I talked to a gentleman here <clears throat> who said his mother's watching from Michigan, you know? You know and and I'm, I like this guy, and I'm sure I would like his mom, you know? So I want to give her a good gift. Uh, I think my even mom in Colorado might be watching. So I want to give her good gifts. And so I'm inspired uh, to give good gifts to you, and we'll see how well that goes. Now, I do have assistance in this uh, from two great patrons, St. Ambrose and St. Anthony of Padua, whose feast day is today. And if you remember a great story from his life that, that, that is uh, a consolation for me, <clears throat> when he was convalescing in Italy after he, was, uh, he wanted to go evangelize the Moors, uh, after he was inspired as an Augustinian friar in Portugal, he saw... Uh, five Franciscans. Uh, these are some, some of the first Franciscan missionaries uh, leave from Portugal to, uh, to North Africa, and they returned, well, their bodies returned, okay? And it inspired him to be a missionary. It inspired him to be a Franciscan. But unfortunately, unfortunately for him, but, but fortunately for the church, actually, God had other plans, uh, and, and he took ill, and he ended up uh, on the Italian peninsula. And as he's convalescing, uh, he, had the, he was afforded the privilege of studying a bunch. Uh, and he read the scriptures, and, and he also had some form, you know, form of education when he was younger that was also of assistance to him. And he developed a, a kind of mastery of, of the word of God. And, and this was very helpful because on one occasion, some Dominicans came to the friary to celebrate Mass the Franciscans. Franciscans assumed that the Dominicans would preach. Okay, they are the order of preachers after all. Uh, but, but, the, but the Dominicans assumed the Franciscans, because they were the hosts, were going to preach. And so the Franciscans were in a bind. You know? And they kept remembering that admonition of, the, of, their, of their founder. You know, he, he wasn't big on theological studies. Uh, these small friars, who are we going to get to say anything? Uh, so they picked Anthony. And he opens his mouth and, and his golden tongue, which is still uh, preserved in uh, the Basilica of St. Anthony of Padua in Padua, Italy, brought forth the truths of God. Uh, and, and he gave a wonderful sermon that uh, established early on his reputation, not only for sanctity, but for real learning and wisdom. Uh, now, this wisdom was the fruit of his prayer, the fruit of uh, his time in, in front of the Blessed Sacrament. But it became then a fruit for, for the church. Uh, it inspired, actually, Francis himself to let Anthony help form uh, the young friars along the lines of his own formation and in such a way that they would continue to be faithful. They would not get too big for their habits, if you will, uh, but, but would still stay true to their roots as Franciscans while developing a mastery of things that one should be a master of if, if he is going to be called to preach and to evangelize. Uh, so I take, I take consolation. Uh, he was asked to, 
Sabatino asked me. Uh, and, and so here you go. Uh, I'm here to present to you, and I'm going to try to keep it simple. Another way in which I'm trying to fulfill the request of Sabatino, uh, he said, remember, we, we, we need to catechize here. We need, this talk is on faith and reason. You know, what, what is faith? What is reason? Uh, people might not know this. Uh, again, they're actually deep concepts that you might, on a superficial encounter of it, which we can learn in a more deep way, and hopefully that'll transpire tonight. And then we'll use that as a foundation to go deeper, to analyze the relationship between the two and how the relationship is relevant to our lives. So it's always helpful, and I'll try to speak to this a couple of different times during the lecture, to see how this material is helpful for me in becoming who God made me to be. Okay? Uh, and achieving the end for which I was made, which is ultimately union with God and beatitude. Uh, so, so hopefully we'll, we'll be able to see the relevance. So I'm simply going to state uh, initially uh, what faith and reason are, uh, and then we'll look at their interrelationship. Because my training is in philosophy, I'll give uh, more weight to that. I did watch Dr. O'Donnell's talk, and he gave more weight to the theological side of the equation. Uh, but I'll do, I'll do both of those things, and maybe even provide uh, uh, even some uh, further specification and, and maybe even definitions of even some of the principles you were introduced to last week by Dr. O'Donnell. Okay? So I'll be doing this not just of my own stores of knowledge, uh, but I'm, I'm trying to, to use certain sources that I think I'd like you to encounter yourself. So hopefully my talk will inspire you to look at the sources themselves, where the church gives her understanding of faith and reason and the relationship. Uh, and so I'll give a few right now, So, if you, for those of you taking notes, different places in the, you know, from the patrimony of, of, of the church where one can look to, where I look to when I uh, develop this lecture for this evening. If you look back to the 13th century, uh, you can look back to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. Okay? In, in his Summa Theologiae, Summa Culture Gentilis, uh, we find very thorough articulations of the relationships between these sciences. Uh, the first question of the first part of his Summa Theologiae looks explicitly at this question. That's how he starts the whole thing. Uh, there's other places you can look if you want to, to look at the thought of St. Thomas. His commentary on Boethius, uh, the first and second questions in his De Veritate. You can look to question 14, article 9, and his commentary on the sentences, question one, article one, I believe is dedicated to the relationship between faith and reason. And that's just a sampling of, of some of the places where Thomas looks at the distinction between philosophy and theology and the distinction between these two means of knowing truth, faith and reason. Now, if we fast forward a little bit, you can also look to the First Vatican Council, uh, De Filius, uh, uh, we see in the document there, produced by Vatican I, one of the first times when the church's magisterium spoke coherently and in detail on the relationship between faith and reason. Uh, I think that's always a good uh, work to turn back to. Uh, and then we can also look at an encyclical letter of uh, Leo XIII, uh, Attorney Patris. It's on the restoration of Christian philosophy according to the mind of St. Thomas Aquinas. He also deals with other Christian philosophers. Uh, but Leo XIII, in Eterni Patris, 
uh, or on the restoration of Christian philosophy according to the mind of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, that is a fantastic place to go for a deeper analysis of this relationship. And finally, this uh, encyclical letter, very accessible, uh, that came out uh, John Paul II, Fides Eratio, Faith and Reason. Uh, this is another very, very good source, a good text for you uh, if you're interested in looking into this topic more fully. In fact, I've given weekend-long lectures on nine or ten lectures on just this encyclical, and I'd be happy to discuss it with anyone who's interested. So that's where I'm deriving my material from. So without further ado then, let's get into the meat of this discussion. Okay? We'll spend a little time looking at the understandings of what faith is, what reason is, and then uh, we'll, we'll deepen that understanding by looking at its relevance and their interrelationship. Now faith, as Dr. O'Donnell described last time, has to do with the ascent of the intellect and will to the revelation of God. It's the ascent of our intellect and will to the revelation of God. And this entails, then, we've received these two highest faculties from God, our intellect and our will. And so it entails us giving back to God what we've received from him. Uh, we've received an intellect that allows us to know truth. We've received a will that allows us to do good and to pursue God and to love God, to love our neighbor. And it's giving these faculties back to him so that we can know and love him. So this is what faith is. Okay? It entails many things. It entails an act of obedience. It's a submission to what God has revealed. Now, you know, the, the whole notion of revelation is God pulling forth, pulling back, almost like a drape, and connecting with his creation and speaking to them, often of that which cannot be known by way of reason, uh, but speaks to them of his own person and, and the mysteries of the Godhead that cannot be known by reason. And our response is that of obedience. And I think the greatest model of this response in obedience is Mary. Mary receives the, the revelation of God, the word of God, who speaks truth to her. She receives it into her mind, into her heart, and gives her whole mind and heart and life back to God. And so it entails the response of God to totally responding to him with our whole persons and to the totality of what he says. Now, he is a perfect authority. And so we can be confident that this perfect father that we have is speaking with a kind of perfection, allows us to have complete certitude regarding what he says. Uh, he is truth itself, and he could not be unfaithful to himself by telling us a lie. So we can have perfect certitude in what he has revealed. Now, this is different. Now, I haven't got into the discussion of reason yet, uh, but it's important to note okay, that arguments then based on authority are the strongest arguments in theology, which is really the science of faith whereas they are the weakest arguments in philosophy. Okay? And it's something worth noting. Because the authority is God, the authority is perfect of the content of faith that we receive, we can have perfect certitude that what he says is true. Now, with philosophy, because we come to know, as we'll discover, the truth of philosophy by way of human reason, 
And we know that our human rational faculties are liable to err. Uh, they are not infallible. Okay, we do not infallibly know reality by way of our human mind. Therefore, just because Aristotle said so, doesn't make it true. The authority of reason is to look back to the conformity to reality itself. And so just because someone said so is not enough in philosophy, but it is enough in theology. Now, having received this word, okay, we can have, as Hebrews mentioned, I believe it's uh, chapter 11, verse 1, that then we can have assurance of these things we have hoped for uh, and conviction of things not seen. Now, it's important to note here that it's a grace. It's a gift. There's things we can do to prepare ourselves, but we cannot force God's hand. Okay? Just like a father wants to give a good gift to his child, and he wants to teach him something in that giving of a gift. Uh, it's not teaching the child the love of the father to allow the child to rip it out of the father's hand. But God gives that good gift and it's a grace. We can ask for it. We can ask him to increase our faith. But it comes from him, and that's why we call it a supernatural virtue. Okay? And it's important to make this distinction. Uh, there are natural virtues. Uh, we can speak of the cardinal virtues. We can speak of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Uh, virtues that the ancients, Aristotle and others, wrote very eloquently about. And then we have the theological virtues, okay? Virtues which are qualitative perfections that, that are in our soul, okay, that dispose us to good action. These virtues are supernatural. They're given and infused by God. So they are a grace and entirely the fruit of God's gratuitous gift to man. Now, that's enough of the basics on faith. Let me speak uh, very briefly now to the basics on reason, and then we'll take it deeper. Now, reason is, uh, you can understand reason in a variety of senses. I'm taking a very wide definition of reason. I think that's the way it's used when you speak of faith and reason. And in this context, uh, reason implies a natural faculty of man that disposes him to know universal truth about reality to know the truth about reality. And those truths, we should add, that are knowable without any special assistance from God. Okay? So reason deals with what you can do with what you were born with. You reflecting on your world. What can you discover about it? And what other conclusions can you discover based on your experience? without taking into consideration any special assistance from God. Now, there's a strict definition of reason for those of you who are very familiar with Thomistic thought. And, and reason is the third act of the mind. Okay? And you can take note of this if you'd like to or not. This isn't the sense necessarily in which it's used uh, and that we're going to be using in this talk. But just to clear up any ambiguity... Uh, the three acts of the mind, the, the fundamental acts of the intellect, uh, the first is simple apprehension, whereby the mind is able to know the essence of material things. Uh, this is an act that, that, generally speaking, we wouldn't say irrational animals are capable of doing. They have sense knowledge, 
but they can't come to know the essence of material things. Uh, They can sense things clearly, but they cannot penetrate the essence to abstract the formal nature of something. Okay, now this act is performed, Thomas would say, by an act of simple apprehension. And so that's whereby we know not just this tree, but tree. We don't just know this man, but man. Now, the second act of the mind is based on the first. It's an act of judgment. We would say that Socrates is a man. A judgment allows us to put two terms together. Okay, I know man, I know this individual, and then I can either bring these two notions together or divide them. We bring them together in an affirmation. We divide them in a negation. Socrates is a man. Socrates is not a cat. Okay, uh, It's based on our knowledge of man that we can make that judgment. And that's where truth and falsity enter into our experience. Man, cat, tree are not true or false, but the cat is on the mat is either true or false, depending on whether the cat is on the mat or not. Having known man, having known Socrates as a man, we can then put two judgments together in an act of reason. Okay? And that is this, another sense in the strict sense of where you might see reason in uh, your reading in philosophy, your reading in theology. And this is speaking of the discursive movement of reason, whereby man is able to move from what he has experienced to what he has to truth, a true conclusion, that follows upon what he's experienced, that is necessary on the basis of what he has experienced. Uh, So, for instance, we could say Socrates is a man. Use that judgment incorporate another judgment that all men are mortal, and then we can arrive at a conclusion. This is what we do in logic. We can discover that Socrates is mortal. From our experience, our judgments, we're able to arrive at a new judgment that we have not experienced, but that we can reason to from what we have experienced. And that is a way in which reason is used, and that's a way in which reason is used as well in theology. Right? And so we can, logic is often seen to be the hand. If you look at all the sciences as having a kind of personified body part, it's the hand that serves all the other parts. Uh, It serves the body and itself is part of the body of our knowledge. And so that's what we we deduce and use reason when we deduce, for instance, let me think of an example, uh, a conclusion like this. When we say that Mary is the mother of Jesus Christ. Okay? And Jesus Christ is God. Therefore, Mary is the mother of God. Okay? We are using reason to arrive at a new conclusion based on what we've experienced, but this is where things are a little bit different. To know the conclusion that Jesus Christ is Lord takes faith. And so that's why you, it presupposes that some of the terms you know in those statements were known because you had faith. Uh, But then that is a way in which, even within the context of theology, reason, in that very strict sense, can be of service even to the theologian. But for now, we're looking at reason in a more wide sense, as simply a faculty of man that disposes him to know the truth about reality, at least those truths that can be known 
without any special assistance from God. Now, having established that, we can, we're prepared to appreciate this quote that inaugurates, if you will, uh, the beginning of this encyclical letter, Fetus et Ratio. Okay, you might have heard this before. Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. It's just a fantastic line. I should reread that one more time. Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. He then adds, And God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth, in a word to know himself, so that by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves. Okay? Now, as we introduce ourselves you know, more fully, again, to a more specific analysis of faith and reason within the context of analysis of philosophy and theology, and our look at their interrelationship, uh, let me unpack that now. Okay? So we know what faith, we know what reason are in this context. So how are they like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth? Now we will begin to unpack that as, as we uh, move on in this lecture. But let me anticipate where this might be going and how now this understanding of faith and reason might be relevant to us. Okay? Now what happens if a bird loses one of its wings? I've never seen it, but I'm sure it doesn't end well, okay? Uh, I I, I know what happens, uh, you know, if you lose one oar and you just paddle on one side of the boat, things don't go well. If a bird loses uh, one of his wings, it probably won't end well for the bird. So it's clear that we need faith and we need reason both. And that having just one or just the other, the pursuit of truth simply by faith or by reason alone, doesn't cut it. Okay, so this is a good admonition for us. Now, what happens, you might wonder, what would really happen if you just abandoned one and kept the other? Well, we fall into different heresies. Okay, we fall into different heresies. In fact, there's a heresy that is identified with the abandonment of one, and there's a heresy that is noted for the abandonment of the other. Okay, and maybe you're familiar with this. If one holds on to faith while forsaking reason entirely, what do we have? We have fideism. Okay, we have fideism. I usually have a board and I can write stuff out, but I'm not going to write on the blinds there. Okay, (laughs) so fideism. Now, the fideist would hold that man has only one means of knowing truth, and that is as revealed. So there is truth by faith, but not by reason. Reason is bankrupt. Reason cannot give man knowledge at all of the truth. Therefore, you should cling to your faith, and that's it. Now, why is this problematic? Hopefully, by the end of the the hour this evening, we'll be able to understand that better. But if we just look at it for a minute, what happens if we abandon reason? And what does that look like? Okay, let's try to make this, bring this down to earth. Now again, what we think changes the way we act and the way we behave. Now if someone is a fideist and they they think that that all knowledge can only come from faith and that there's no knowledge that can be gained from the natural world, there's a sort of negative attitude, isn't that, to nature. 
and its ability to benefit man and to bless man. Nature doesn't have a lot to teach. Therefore, we should withdraw into our soul, turn out the world, and within the inner chambers of, of our hearts and our minds, turn to God. Okay? Now, there's nothing wrong with that per se, but if that is the exclusive means of man coming to truth, what does it look like? Well, let's look at how one might worship if that is your attitude. Well, if the natural world, there's nothing to be seen in it. There's nothing to be learned from it. Well, you might as well worship in a church that looks like Walmart. Why not? Okay, there's nothing of beauty or preference to be found in one architectural scheme as opposed to another. Again, it's all about turning inward and discovering God. The world has nothing to teach. Your attitude towards the world is skeptic. Okay? And so there is just a small difference between the radical skeptic who would deny man knowledge of anything and the fideas. They both are alike in rejecting the use of reason to know truth. And so the manifestations you know, in, in one's life uh, of this attitude, one's worship might... Walmart would serve just as well as Chartres Cathedral. Okay? Now, what about the other side of the equation? What about the rationalist? Now, the rationalist would hold that all truth is knowable by reason. There is no mystery. There is no faith. Okay? There is no truth higher than what I can master with my own mind. That is what the rationalist affirms. I can know everything by the power of my reason. I can unlock every mystery. In fact, the rationalists affirm there is no mystery. There's no mystery at all. That my human mind cannot penetrate and completely know. Now, the fideists would be, there's some Protestant sects, certainly, that are fideist in their inclination. They deny that the natural world has any positive way in which it can assist man in knowing God and in coming to a richer understanding of truth. The rationalist could be manifested by individuals like Hegel, for instance. I don't know if you've ever heard of Hegel, uh, who thought the human mind could penetrate and know all things. Okay? The Enlightenment is full of individuals of this ilk, that human reason alone can know all things. Now, what might a church look like for these people? just to try to make this concrete. Because again, people's attitudes and actions are a manifestation of their inner convictions. Now, I think at least a monument that manifests this is the Jeffersonian Memorial. We're all familiar with that you know, in D.C. It's perfectly rational. It's perfectly ordered. And it has a beauty, a splendor about it. It's proportioned. But you've seen it once, you've seen it a thousand times. You know, I don't keep going back there, you know, because once you've seen it once, you've seen it. All right. Now, what are the manifestations in someone's life of a life that has faith and reason as a part of their life, as a part of their seeking for truth? Well, I mentioned Chartres Cathedral. I think of St. Peter's. Okay. And what do we find? We find both reason. We do find proportionality. It's ordered. It's amazing. You can stand in the middle of uh, the colonnade at St. Peter's, 
And if you stand in certain places, you can look through all of, of the different columns. Everything is ordered. Everything's proportional. So how is it different than the, the Jefferson Memorial? There's mystery. There's always something new to uncover. You've seen it once. You've seen it once. You haven't seen it a thousand times. Every time you go in there, there's something new. There's things hidden. Things, new things to discover. Yeah, you think of you know, these gargoyles you know, that they put you know, in, in Paris. Way up there, I want to see what's, what they look like on, from the backside. You know? And these guys spent time intricately making these things. I have no idea what role gargoyles serve in the life of faith. Uh, you know, someone can enlighten me later on that one. But, but there's something new to discover. There's mystery. And faith brings with it mystery. But we don't want to be lost in total mystery. Okay? We don't want to be lost in hyper-rationalism. But the virtue is always the mean between extremes. And we find that virtue when we accept faith and accept reason. We find a life that is both ordered but adventurous. As G.K. Chesterton mentioned in Orthodoxy, that is the Christian experience of truth. It's not totally familiar. It's not totally familiar. That would be boring and humdrum if you could know everything by your own rational faculties. But it's not total mystery. Then you wouldn't be at home in your pursuit of truth. But it's both familiar and a mystery. And this is communicated, and we experience this when we're open to these two great means God has given us to know truth, reason and faith. It's then that they can become the two wings upon which we can ascend to God and see Him, and in seeing Him, discover the full truth about ourselves. All right. Now the second part of that quote that I'll unpack, and I just referred to a minute ago, is that when you see the full truth about God, that you can see by using faith and reason to ascend to knowledge of God, you also discover the truth about yourself. Okay? And I think that's a worthwhile point. I'm not going to belabor it too much, but I want to make reference to it. The truth is theocentric. God is the fullness of truth. God is the fullness of being. To fully have truth would be to fully comprehend God. Other things have a share in his being. We have truth, but not the fullness of truth when we know them. But they can become a means then to lead us in the direction of their origin. God, who is the fullness of being. But the great beauty of faith and reason is we are able to ascend to God. And not just God as he's known rationally, but God as he's known by faith, where we can actually penetrate his inner life and know what he demands of us. Okay? And that leads us into my discussion now of the interrelationship between these sciences. Okay? When we discover God, we discover that he is the end for which we are made. Okay? Now, it's important to know that God is the end for which we are made. Why is it important? It's important because... There's a maxim in philosophy that the final cause, the end or goal that you seek, is the first cause in the order of intention. That means it's 
First, in terms of inspiring your movement, the why, your purpose, your goal, comes before you getting there. How do you explain how I I got to this St. Ambrose Church tonight? Well, it was my goal. And that explained why I took, from Linden, I took a ride on to 66, and then I got off on wherever I got off, followed my little map here, okay? Every turn made sense only because of where I was ultimately going, okay? Now, the first question, the first article of the Summa, Thomas asked this question. Now, that we know something about faith and reason, and philosophy and theology, knowledge of those, go hand in hand. Very briefly, we'll just say for our purposes here, that they're related in the following way, philosophy and theology, or are defined in the following way. Uh, now that we know what faith and reason are, this is not so much of a stretch. Okay? Faith is integral, obviously, to the science of theology, and reason, obviously, is highly integral to the science of philosophy. In fact, we can define theology as the study of that, which has been revealed by God and known by faith, and which is known by faith. Meanwhile, philosophy is the study of that which can be known through the natural light of human reason. And so, more or less, the science of faith is theology. The science of reason is philosophy. Okay? And these are both necessary for us to gain a perfect mastery of the truth. Now, let's look at the relationship between these two sciences and figure out exactly how they are specifically different from one another and how they serve one another. Okay? And then we can see better how they are integral to our life and are these two wings that we need to use in collaboration to ascend to knowledge of truth. Now, to do this, I'm going to follow a different order. A few of my even former students are here, and maybe for their sake, if not yours, I'm going to choose a different method of approaching this. I'm not going to approach it in exactly the same way I've done before, but I'm going to approach it from the Summa itself, St. Thomas's Summa Theologiae, and follow the method by which he explains the distinction and relationship between these sciences. Okay? Now, he asks in the first question of the Summa, whether beyond philosophical science, any other science is needed. Maybe by philosophy alone, we have all we need to have in order to get where we're going in life, to know our end and to get there. And Thomas says no. Because even philosophy can show, now I'm not going to get into all the intricacies of how it does this now, but Boethius, Aristotle, Plato, a whole variety of philosophers, uh, demonstrated that God is the end of man, okay? that which man is made for. He is the perfect good that we desire. Okay? Man desires happiness, and perfect happiness can't come from an imperfect good. We realize this. I might have wealth, which is an imperfect good. It doesn't give me perfect happiness. Once you have wealth, then you have to protect it. Once you have a nice car, then the hail comes down and you're paranoid because it might dent up your car. Whereas with me, I just keep driving. Just listen to the charming sound of the hail in my car. You know, it really can't devalue what is already worth nothing. Okay, Uh, so. You know, it's, it's not really anxiety-provoking. And so we see that even with some goods, like wealth, there's something deficient about them. For every good that they give us, there's something lacking. 
But they argue eventually. I'm not going to get into all the intricacies of the distinction. But we can see that the only way we can then have a complete happiness would be in a good that leaves us lacking for nothing. A perfect good can make us perfectly happy. Now, God is goodness. He is the source of all good things. And so only God can make us happy. But philosophy seems to give us a knowledge of God. So maybe philosophy alone is necessary for man. And Thomas argues that that's not the case. Okay? And he argues it for the following reason. He argues that there is above, and here I'll, I'm going to use some quotes from his summa here. There is truths about God that surpass the grasp of reason. Hence, it was necessary for the salvation of man that certain truths that exceed human reason should be made known to him by divine revelation. So in other words, we're ordered to God, and not just any God. We're not just made to contemplate him. We're made to be united to God, and even the God of revelation. And so we need to know that at the outset of our life. And it's true that philosophy can know God, but only after he admits a long time and an admixture of air. And so it would only be for the professional philosophers to come to knowledge of God, the thing that they are ordered to, but even they would only discover that belatedly. And maybe their life would end before having made the discovery of what they're made for and that they need to direct their actions in order to return to their maker. Okay? So there's a problem if we don't know right away what we're made for and what we need to do to get there. And thus, divine revelation was necessary. It was necessary that we know with perfect certitude at the outset what man's end is and how to get there. And God, in his great generosity, gives us that knowledge by way of his revelation. Now, this is communicated as well in his Summa Contra Gentilis. Okay, this is book one on God. He says the following quote, No one tends with desire and zeal towards something that is not already known to him. But we shall examine later on in this work that men are ordained by divine providence towards a higher good than human fragility can experience in the present life. That is why it was necessary for the human mind to be called to something higher than human reason here and now can reach so that it would thus learn to desire something and with zeal tend towards something that surpasses the whole state of the present life. This belongs especially to the Christian religion, which in a unique way promises spiritual and eternal goods. And so there are many things proposed to men in it that transcend human sense or human reason. Okay. Now, now, what is he saying? Very simply, is that there is a moral necessity, not of God, but for man, to know what his end is, and to know how he should act in order to direct his life towards that end. 
Now we can understand and know God and understand something of the moral law, the way men ought to act. We can know that God is our end. And therefore we can see certain actions are incompatible with returning to our end, whereas other actions are compatible and consistent with our progression toward that end. They are ordered in respect to our nature, which is directed towards an end. But our discovery of that would take a lot of time, and it would be very difficult, and we would make mistakes. But because this is something we can't screw up, God was good, so good to us to give us knowledge of our end, a perfect knowledge that even transcends the bounds of what reason can know, and he's told us exactly what we need to do to get there. Okay? And so what does this communicate to us? Well, the first thing it communicates is that there's a means of coming to truth that transcends. He uses that word, transcends human reason. So we know that the sciences are distinct by their means of coming to truth. And so one of the fundamental ways that distinguishes philosophy from theology is the means by which they come to truth. Theology comes to truth by way of what God has revealed and which we assent to by faith. Philosophy comes to truth by way of reason. But these truths that are known by faith exceed the grasp and bounds of human reason. And so we see already that there's a kind of superiority and subordination among the sciences. There is one that is the queen and one that is the handmaid. There is the Regina Scienciarum, the queen of the sciences, which will be theology. And there is a helpmate that this queen has in the servant that is philosophy. So we see that the sciences are different and distinct because of the way they approach their subject matter, and that there is a superior way in which theology approaches its subject matter that gives it a higher knowledge, knowledge of things that are beyond the grasp of unaided human reason. So all that is made clear at the very outset from studying the Summa Theologiae. Now, as you move forward, we discover more about this distinction. One of the things we find in Question 1, Article 5, this is still of the first part of St. Thomas's Summa Theologiae, that theology has a higher certitude than philosophy. Okay? I hinted at this earlier, made reference to this earlier, is that because the knowledge of theology comes from a perfect authority, God, its certitude surpasses that of man and his philosophy, which comes from an inferior authority, which is that of his own reason. Thomas puts it this way. Other sciences derive their certitude, besides theology, from the natural light of human reason, which can err, whereas this science derives its certitude from the light of divine knowledge, which cannot be misled. So we discover that the means by which theology approaches its subject matter is different. It also is different because of its higher certitude. And related and suggested, when we discussed the means by which they know their subject matter, it's also distinct on the basis of its subject matter, what it studies. Uh, And let me quote, this is also from the fifth article. 
that theology is superior and distinct from philosophy in point of the higher worth of its subject matter. Because the science treats chiefly of those things which by their sublimity transcend human reason, while other sciences consider only those things which are within reason's grasp. Okay? So we see now the sciences are distinct because of the way they approach their objects and because of their certitude, theology's certitude transcending that of philosophy and their subject matter. There are topics of inquiry in theology that do not belong to philosophy. Now, what is the name of those topics that are pursued in theology and not in philosophy? Thomas gives a name to those truths that are those truths that surpass the bounds of human reason. And he calls them the articles of faith. He calls them the articles of faith. He discusses this in question 1, article 8 of the first part of his Summa Theologiae. The articles of faith are the principles, he says, of theology. Now, what does he mean by a principle? A principle is that from which something proceeds. Okay? So the principles of a conclusion would be the premises. The principle of an effect would be its cause. Uh, if you look at the axioms of Euclid, okay, they could be the principles from which the rest of his geometric science are deduced. And so the principles of theology are called the articles of faith. And these are the ones that we receive and cannot be proven themselves. Okay? Now, this shouldn't shock us. They can't be proven by reason. You know, that there are things that the mind cannot know. Uh, shouldn't scandalize us unless we're so caught up in our pride. But also we can take note that as in all sciences, there have to be some premises that are taken as primitive that can't be proven by other aspects of the science, or else we would end up not being able to have a beginning at all. And so they are simply where theology starts. And they are known with certitude. Okay? And this is where St. Thomas, in question, Article 8, makes reference to this truth I noted earlier, that arguments based on authority are the strongest in theology if they're based on divine revelation, whereas authority on the basis of human reason, those kind of arguments are the weakest. And so we will receive these articles as gifts from God, from which we can deduce other truths, but that we can have absolute certitude in because the giver of these great gifts is God himself, who cannot lie okay, and cannot deceive unless he were to contradict his nature, which is itself impossible. Okay? And Thomas says, though, these articles of faith are, in question 46, they cannot be proved demonstratively, because faith is of things that appear not. And so their very character is that they cannot be proven by reason, okay? but simply have to be assented to by faith. Those are the truths that belong to theology alone and that have no part to play in philosophy. Now, you might ask the question now. Let's take stock of where we're at. We've seen a little bit of the distinction between the sciences. 
Now, regarding these articles of faith that are the matter, the subject matter that belong to theology alone, can philosophy do anything to assist in knowing those truths? Okay, this is, I think, a very, very important question. Or is it just a blind leap of faith that we make? Is there anything unaided reason can do to help us understand what has been revealed? Or make more intelligible to someone else these truths? Well, Thomas says there is. Okay? The first way reason can aid us in understanding or coming to or being open to the gift of faith that leads us to know with, with certitude that these articles of faith is it can make them, the first thing it can do, can make them intelligible. It can show how they are at least not contrary to reason. Because the truth is one, you can show that it's at least a possibility that one God is three persons. It's not contrary to reason. Even if we can't discover it on our own, it is possible. Okay, We can make it intelligible, Thomas would say. You can make intelligible the conclusion that the world has a beginning in time, which Thomas holds to be an article of faith, by showing, for instance, that the opposite conclusion, that it could be proven that the world has an eternal duration, is not true. So you can argue against those conclusions that would make the truth that we accept impossible. Okay, this is what St. Augustine would do. He was a materialist early in his life. He didn't believe that man could come to knowledge of supersensible reality. He then read the works of the Platonist, which gave him the idea of how man could come to know immaterial reality, even by reason. And so he could show, even if he couldn't prove to someone maybe the totality of, of what is implied in supersensible existence, he could at least show that materialism is not what man has to affirm. And it's at least possible, certainly, that uh, there could exist supersensible reality. Now, with that, he actually could go further and prove it, so maybe that isn't the best example. But the point here is that you can make at least intellectually intelligible, that is not contrary to reason, the truths that we accept by faith. But we can even go further. It's not that we can just make them intelligible. That is not contrary to reason. We can even make them probable. That is believable. Now, what is meant here? Okay, what's, what's meant here is that we can make those truths that we assent to by faith seem like the more probable solution. Now, how we do this is by way of the motives of credibility. If you look at the Catechism, I think it's number 156, it speaks of them. And it speaks of them in the following way. Motives of credibility show that the ascent of faith is by no means a blind impulse of the mind. For God willed that external proofs of his revelation should be joined to the internal helps of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the miracles of Christ and the saints, prophecies, the church's growth and holiness, and her fruitfulness and stability are the most certain signs of divine revelation adapted to the intelligence of all. Okay? 
It also says in the Summa Contra Gentiles, uh, this is um, 6 1, uh, chapter 6, paragraph 1. It says this Those who place their faith in this truth, however, for which the human reason offers no experimental evidence, do not believe foolishly, as though following artificial fables. For these secrets of divine wisdom, the divine wisdom itself, which knows all things to the full, has deigned to reveal to man. It reveals its own presence as well in the truth of its teaching and inspiration by fitting arguments. And in order to confirm those truths that exceed natural knowledge, it gives visible manifestation to works that surpass the ability of all nature. Thus, there are wonderful cures of illnesses. There is the raising of the dead and the wonderful immutation in the heavenly bodies. And what is more wonderful, there is the inspiration given to human minds so that simple, untutored persons filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit come to possess instantaneously the highest wisdom, etc., etc. Okay? So this is what we're talking about when we point to the fact that our church has been around for 2,000 years. And it's been in Italy the whole time. And it's still standing. Okay? Yeah, their government changes every three weeks. You know? But somehow the church is able to stand amid controversy, amid scandal. Now, these are arguments. You know, the miracles performed by the saints. But we have to be careful here. They only show the probability of the faith. But you still need the gift of faith to take the person the next step. Because you could always say, hey, maybe there's some natural explanation for these miracles. We just haven't discovered it yet. Someone could say that, and that's fair. It's fair. But it sure makes it probable. Okay? It lends probability to the truths that we accept by faith. Uh, another example. Okay, another example. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, mentioned that the, the, oh, there's, there's one of three possibilities regarding Christ. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. I think he's the one who did this. And he says, look, we can show that he's not a liar. And it doesn't make sense to think he's a lunatic. The only remaining conclusion is that he meant what he said, and he really was lord. Now, does that force people to believe in that conclusion? No. But it lends probability. And that's a way reason can serve us in coming to knowledge even of the articles of faith. So that's the way it helps. But now, what about this? What about this? That's how it serves us knowing the articles of faith. Now, you might be tempted to think then, the philosophy and theology are distinct because of the way they accept their truths and what they study. But that is not the case. Now, most sciences are distinct exclusively by the subject matter. You know, botany studies plant life, zoology studies animal life, but with theology and philosophy, sometimes they study the same thing. Because you might say, what about the existence of God? Is that a subject, part of the subject matter of theology? Because it's revealed, and we can take it on faith. But then does it, St. Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle and a bunch of other people offer proofs for the existence of God? So what is it? Is it a truth of faith, or is it a truth of reason? The answer is both. Okay? There is an overlapping region. Okay, if you picture a sphere of the body of knowledge of theology, everything that's been revealed that we can accept on faith, there is an overlap. There are some truths that God has revealed that can actually be proven by reason. Things like the existence of God, knowledge of certain attributes of God, immortality of the soul. Even Plato and Aristotle, they offered 
demonstrations of the immortality of the soul. That the soul has to be immortal, and it's an immaterial, and capable of subsistence apart from the body. There are some truths that are demonstrable even to human reason. And so we find the foremost way in which the sciences are distinct is by the way they approach their objects. Because sometimes their objects overlap. Okay? Now, where does that leave us? How can philosophy serve theology? Well, it can serve theology, and how does it work practically? How would Thomas, what would he advise us to do? Well, first thing is believe. Okay? Believe. If you've been given the gift of faith, run with it. It's a gift. It gives you certain knowledge of where you're going and how to get there. And then how can reason, though, serve us? How can reason serve us in the pursuit of truth? And how can it serve us? Well, it can prove some of those truths that have been revealed. Okay? Uh, some of those truths have been revealed, which Thomas calls the preambles to the articles of faith. Okay? He says that in the second question of the Summa, when he's looking at the existence of God, he calls them the preambles to the articles of faith. Those truths that are both revealed and knowable by reason. Prove what you can prove. Get to know the philosophical arguments that prove what you believe. Because if some believer, if someone doesn't have to get to faith, you say, well, I'll prove it to you. Okay? And then, regarding those truths that cannot be proven, then you can at least make them intelligible. Or even probable by using the motives of credibility. And this is a very important way in which philosophy and reason can aid in opening one to make the leap of faith. Okay? It's like tilling the soil upon which the seed of divine revelation can be sown. And when reason is well prepared, we find fertile soil upon which the seed of divine revelation can be sown and can thrive and grow and prosper in the mind of man. Okay? Now we can see here many things. There's many implications here. We see that theology is a higher science, but philosophy can serve her and is still necessary. And I wish I had more time to get into this point. It's also necessary. Uh, there's a very important quote uh, by St. Thomas. He says this, I think it's Article 8, response to Objection 2. He says, now, from what has been said, it is evident that the teaching of the Christian faith deals with creatures so far as they reflect a certain likeness of God, and so far as air concerning them leads to air about God. Now, now one point, and for the rest of your reading, I might even recommend two books to you that might be very useful. They look at what happens when someone has an inadequate philosophical formation how that, their imperfect knowledge of the created world, how that corrupts their knowledge of God. Okay? Uh, it, it, one, I might have suggested before, it's written by the man who directed my thesis. It's called Ecumenism in Philosophy. And then there is another work that I think is quite good that was written by a man who uh, is going to actually speak at Christendom, I believe. He's a scholar from Notre Dame, he's a historian, named Brad Gregory, and it's called The Unintended Reformation. And this is more for those history buffs here. 
he looks at how certain heirs, philosophical heirs, okay, that affected the reformers in such a way that they had their intentions for the reformation of Christendom could never end up being successful. And how ultimately some intellectual deficiencies actually led the reformers and the fruits and consequences of their thought ultimately led Western civilization on the road to secularism. Uh, It traces the fruits of the secularist state we live in now to intellectual heirs present at the time of the reformers. And so you can look at that, how philosophy can corrupt theology. And now to finish, how can theology aid our philosophy? Well, having known the answer, you have a kind of answer key, so you know when your reason goes astray. And also it can inspire you to look into certain matters that you know by faith. This happened in history. The whole idea of creation out of nothing. It was really arrived at first by way of Judeo-Christian thinkers. And it inspired philosophers to look into the same principle and to discover that they can prove the same by way of reason. So these are the different ways in which even theology can help philosophy. Okay? Uh, I'll even give one last way philosophy can aid theology in the reverse case, and and we'll finish with this point, and I'll weave this into my conclusion. One thing it can do, and one way you can use your reason to assist you, is when you discover that a theological position cannot be known by reason, and then other Christians try to offer rational demonstrations of what cannot be proven you can be inspired to correct them. In other words, when, and he mentions this in question 46, article 2 of the Summa, that sometimes Christians think that certain truths of our faith, like the Trinity, can be fully rationalized. And the danger of that is it leaves unbelievers to laugh at us when they think that we believe those revealed truths on the basis of those deficient arguments. And so St. Thomas would use philosophy to prove those truths of faith that can be proven, to make intelligible and to make credible those revealed truths that cannot be proven, and also took pains to disprove those faulty arguments that sought to prove what cannot be proven, in order that we might have and accept the true doctrines of faith, the articles of faith, in their purity as gifts from God. Now, in conclusion, then, I'm going to just read this. I'm going to read one thing from Fetus Orazio. Uh, hopefully, I've just, again, primed the pump, piqued your interest in some of these themes. But I'd like you to see something interesting. Okay? The way in which philosophy and theology are both necessary for man and the way in which they are related, one as the queen and one as the handmaiden. And it reminds us of a relationship, okay, between two other important persons in our life of faith, that of Christ and Mary, actually. We find that theology is the best and highest science, but philosophy serves it. And so, too, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, the source of all being and all goodness. But Mary is pretty good, too, okay? And she leads us to him. And with that in mind, I'll finish with this quote. This is from the end 
a fetus of ratio. It's a little bit long, but then we'll, we'll finish here. I turn in the end to the woman whom the prayer of the church invokes as seed of wisdom, and whose life itself is a true parable, illuminating the reflection contained in these pages. For between the vocation of the Blessed Virgin and the vocation of true philosophy, there is a deep harmony. Just as the Virgin was called to offer herself entirely as a human being, and as woman, that God's word might take flesh and come among us, so too philosophy is called to offer its rational and critical resources, that theology, as the understanding of faith, may be fruitful and creative. And just as in giving her assent to Gabriel's word, Mary lost nothing of her true humanity and freedom, so too when philosophy heeds the summons of the gospel truth, its autonomy is in no way impaired. Indeed, it is then that philosophy sees all its inquiries rise to their highest expression. This was a truth which the holy monks of Christian antiquity understood well. When they called Mary the table at which faith sits in thought. In her they saw a lucid image of true philosophy. And they were convinced of the need to philosophize in Mary. May Mary, seat of wisdom, be a sure haven for all who devote their lives to the search of wisdom. May their journey into wisdom, sure and final goal of all true knowing, be freed of every hindrance by the intercession of the one who, in giving birth to the truth and treasuring it in her heart, has shared it forever with the world. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Wunsch, for a wonderful presentation. Uh, you'll stay around for a little bit of questions. I, I will. And I will. I will. Okay, wonderful. I will. Just uh, a little note: if any of you found yourself scratching your heads, this is difficult. There might be two answers to uh, solving that problem. The first is turning off the television, and uh, the second thing is preparing yourself for a presentation like this by reading. Fides et Ratio is posted on our website but also keeping a notepad with you when you come to the Institute, because we're not here for entertainment. The day we're here for entertainment, I failed in my job. So bring a notepad with you and a pen so that you can take notes. And even if you throw it away afterwards, it keeps your mind focused upon what the professor is saying and will help you understand what's going on and be able to build upon the knowledge you received rather than forgetting it when you walk out the door. Okay, so make sure you bring a notepad and a pen with you. Just a couple quick notes. You can sit down if you want. I know I'm Melkite, so I stand all the time, but you probably... I know you... Uh, no, no, no. Oh, bow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew it was coming. I, I was working on that this whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is probably the last time that I, uh, I, I'm, I'm on equal rank intellectually because we both have master's degrees. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so oh. next time you come, I'm going to be outranked. Yeah, I, I, actually, I actually have a license degree, yeah, and that's no, higher than a master's. Actually, okay, yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, yeah. all right. All right, Professor Wunsch is back. With wine, with wine. With yeah, wine, yeah, yeah, we allow. Yeah, yeah. Get interested. It's very nice, yeah. very nice. I found like reason followed from faith. 
And then if I put the other first, I got confused and confounded. What's your experience of that? Yeah, yeah, sure. It, it's, a great, it's a great question, great. The tradition of the church is that it's faith-seeking understanding. That quote came from St. Augustine originally. You seek to believe in order that you may understand, is what Augustine affirmed. That was reiterated in the 11th century by St. Anselm, and he's often kind of identified with this whole notion of faith-seeking understanding. And I think there's good reason for that. And I think it came out a little bit, hopefully, in my talk. Now, Augustine eventually got to faith via reason. He abandoned the faith of his youth and started looking for the answers to life's questions in, in a whole range of false philosophies. So he's looking at Manichaeism, uh, which is kind of materialism. He's looking at skepticism. And then he finally stumbled on good philosophy in Plato, which helped prime the pump and prepare him to come to the truth. But he said, that took me 18 years. And I never was baptized as a child. I could have died along the way. And so by God's grace, somehow I made it ultimately back to the church. And he said, there's two ways to pursue truth. There's a road that bypasses all of that that I should have taken from the outset. And that is the road I recommend to everyone. Uh, because the other way is full of marauders and threats and dangers, and you may never arrive at where you need to be. Okay? I think there's a lot to be said that you seek first, you believe, and then that can enlighten your reason, and then the reason can, can help, as a handmaid helps. But obviously there's something that's superior to reason, and that is our faith, and we should give it pride of place. Professor, this question relates to the part of your lecture in which you discuss the relationship on the one hand between faith and reason and the yeah. second between architecture, Chartres yeah. and the Jefferson Memorial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, since the 1960s, there seems yeah. to have been an architectural trend in yeah. church instruction yeah. emphasizing more of a minimalist approach, yeah. considerably less ornate than Chartres. Yeah, yeah. Uh, has this been reflected at all in philosophy and theology? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I would be inclined to think that the architecture is more of a manifestation of the philosophy and theology of our time. Our art is often you know, chaotic and, and lacking proportionality. Well, that's a fruit of skepticism. I mean, the skeptic doesn't believe there's order. I mean, there's no order in our knowing. And it's manifested in their art, which is orderless and bereft of form and, I would argue, beauty. That has seeped into the way we design churches. Huh? That kind of minimalism, uh, that kind of disorder. And then we also find churches, <laughs> yeah, I won't name names, you know, uh, that even emphasize other, I, I would argue, erroneous ways of understanding God and its relationship to man. I mean, in some of these churches in the round, okay, where you look at each other the whole time. Yeah. Their idea is, is, I think, noble, is that you can see God in each other. But you know what? We can see God in each other all week, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, there, there's one day a week where you just want to see God, you know? And so the idea of, of orienting us all worshiping the Lord together gives us strength to see God in each other. Spirit of the Liturgy, written by Cardinal Ratzinger, makes reference to that, you know, that, that it's in a worshiping, even, even the priests, you know, facing on behalf of the people offering uh, the sacrifice, 
You know, we're, we all find our dignity in worshiping God. And then we can get along with each other. I mean, if we try to get along with each other without including God in it, we, we, we can't understand man. Uh, and that's what the Vat- Second Vatican Council says, you know. It's in discovering God that man becomes intelligible to himself. Uh, and we're able to truly love and truly able to see our dignity because we're made in the image and likeness of God. We're able to see that only after we know God. And then we can, we can see the dignity in others. And so I think a lot of the, the modern kind of manifestations in architecture are manifestations of erroneous philosophy and theology. Yeah. Having listened to a bunch of your lectures, okay. two questions. Okay. Um, one, does nominalism necessarily lead to the divorce of faith from reason? Mm-hmm. And two, mm-hmm. in your opinion, does ICC need a lecture on nominalism? Okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Okay. Nominalism, in a nutshell, <laughs> denies the ability of man to come to universal knowledge or truth. All that can be known are the singular things in our experience. And, and it's based on a, a very common sense approach to reality in many, in many ways. Everything in our experience is individual and particular. Where have you seen tree? Where have you seen cow? or a dog. I've seen cows and dogs, which are particulars. I've never seen cow and dog. And yet we, we make universal generalizations. And the anomalous doesn't see how that can be justified. So any of our universal ideas of cow, tree, you know, man even, are not justifiable. All there are individuals that may be similar enough that we give a name that, that groups them together. But the grouping together of these individuals is arbitrary. <clears throat> because the anomalous ultimately denies the possibility of coming to truth, to make universal judgments of how reality is beyond sense experience, I think it does in many ways lead to the severing of the relationship between faith and reason, and it leads man, well, to become a skeptic regarding his reason, and then to either become fideist or an atheist. I was wondering, as you spoke, is theology uniquely Christian? Because we, unlike, I think, other religions, understand the inner life of God. And isn't that what a lot of theology is about? And so is it uniquely Christian? That's a really good question. That's actually a more difficult question than it sounds, I think. Um, So theology, the very word means, it's a study of God, right? And so it all begins with God. And you only study other things, Thomas says, insofar as they relate from God as coming from him and being led back to him. Uh, So you study creatures insofar as they relate to God. They come forth from him, return to him. But theology is primarily the study of God. Now, philosophy can study God too, but they don't begin with God. Theology, you begin with God as as a principle, and then you get to other things later. Philosophy begins with other things. It begins with our experience of things in this world and gets at God last. Okay, because we don't experience God. Remember, philosophy deals with that which we can know through the light of human reason, and we don't ordinarily experience supersensible reality. At least I don't. <laughs> Maybe you guys do, but I don't. And so any knowledge of supersensible reality has to be proven from the things that have been made. And so there's arguments to the existence of God, but they always begin with an empirical fact, or at least the ones I think are valid. Okay? Uh, so it also deals with God. Okay, so there's something about philosophy that deals with God. Now, I would argue it depends on the religion. But some religions, the Jewish religion, for instance, gives us more in many respects 
than what philosophy gives us. You know, it gives us the history of Abraham and the prophets, you know, the whole Old Testament. They wouldn't admit they're talking of the Christian God. But in hindsight, we can see the typology. It's implicit, you might say, in their thought that the Christian God is implied. Let me finish with a really neat quote. Okay, why all this study of God is important? Why, why ascending to God on these two wings of, of faith and reason are important? This is, this is a great quote from Schultzenitsyn on atheism. This is Alexander Schultzenitsyn. He wrote you know, the Gulag Archipelago. And he wrote a very interesting quote that, that I want to share with you. Over half a century ago, When I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God, and that's why all this has happened, is what they would say. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on a history of our revolution. In the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes, and they're large, of my own toward the effort to clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Okay? Now, to avoid falling into this air, we don't just need our faith. We need our reason. We need all of our faculties at our disposal to continue affirming what is true, good, and beautiful. Or else, you know, it's, it's not innocuous. The horrors of the gulag, the horrors of Pol Pot in Cambodia, and, and what transpired over the last century, the, the famines in, in places like Ukraine and in China... They all began in a cafe in Vienna and a cafe in Berlin. Ideas matter, and getting your ideas right have real-world consequences. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor. Thank you very much. Maybe he is smarter than I am. Thank you very much, Professor, for a wonderful presentation. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.